Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. As we see, some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. Uh, when it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. Spit, everybody. Take a big logie and uh, spit it out of your lips onto the ground. Let it dangle. Disgusting. That is the most disgusting intro. Just give us a yeah, guy. Forget about that. (laughs) Take two. Yeah, guy. No, no. We're we're going with that one. That's a good one. Yeah, guy. Dangling logie. Logie or Loogie? I think you're talking about Travis Logie. Logie, Loogie. guess it depends where you're from. Dude, I don't think I've heard the word Loogie since I was in junior high, 13 years old or something. Which was the last time you said yeah guy with any semblance of sincerity, probably. That's a good point. Very, very true. Um, How are you? I am well, Scott here with David Lee Scales, and uh, we're talking surf, all things surf on this Tuesday afternoon, May the 12th, National Nurses Day, David. Holy cow, look at you. Is that your Duke of the Week? Thank you. It isn't actually, I actually know, but okay, it will be. Yes. Um, All the nurses. I didn't even know that it was a that there was a National Nurses Day. Is it demarcated on your calendar? It's demarcated in my brain, bro. Do you know Nurse. any nurses? Yeah, my next door neighbor. There you go. Yep. Shout out to Scott to the Bass uh, family neighbor. That's right. Nurses everywhere. Um, have you been surfing? I have. I surfed today. I surfed yesterday. I surfed the day before. I actually made a rescue a couple of days ago. No way. Yeah. Two women in a rip current. I was out surfing. So funny because where I surf, there's a there's always a, what they call like a static rip. It's always in the same place. And it pulls really hard on South Swells. And the tide was low. And this rip was just running way out. And these two ladies, I, I actually was paddling out when they were out, you know, like in the waist deep water and I paddled right past them and they were catching little white washes. They were surfers. And, um, you know, 20 minutes into my session, I kick out of a wave and I'm paddling out and I can see that they're just way out there and they're fine. They're not freaking out or anything, but they're way out and not, you know, for, for where they were, they're like 150 yards past where they were when I saw them. On wow. the inside. And so I turn around. I look at this one guy next to me and I'm like, I point to him and he's like completely clueless. Like it blows my mind how clueless people are. Like the guy didn't even know what I was pointing to. And then 
I turn around, look on the beach and there's a lifeguard on duty in the tower. And then the lifeguard in the truck is like standing by and I can see the guy's gotten out of the truck and like all lifeguards, he's like going, shit, I don't feel like getting wet right now. <laughs> so he's Cold just kind, water. Of, kind of standing by, you know, that's yeah. the last thing lifeguards want to do is like get wet. Especially if you're in the truck, like if you're in the tower, you're sort of expected to, but, and he probably would have just directed the girl in the tower to go get the, these two. But so I paddle up to him. I scream at him. I'm like, Hey, just paddle over to me. You know, just paddle over here screaming at him. They're like, Oh, Hey, I'm like, paddle over here. You're in a rip paddle over to me. You know, instead of going in, I'm having them paddle parallel towards the, the surf line and they get it. And they eventually get up to me and I paddle over to them. And I just kind of go, look, here's the deal. You're in a static rip paddle over this way. And if you want to go in, just power in where the white water is and it'll push you in. And they were fine. And I gave a code four to the lifeguards and everything was cool. So Heroic. I don't know. It, I don't know if it was a rescue so much as it was like what they call a water safety contact. Um, if you can rescue somebody with verbal commands and cues, all the better. That's still, it's your expertise that's rescuing them. You don't have to go get in there and put them in the stranglehold and drag them towards the beach. Um, by the way, how is your swimming prowess? Are you are you a good swimmer? I'm capable. I mean, I'm in. I was never like a swim team guy or like a water polo guy or anything like that. But I mean, I made it in at Puerto Escondido that one. Time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Um, I am a terrible swimmer, dude. Like for the amount of time that I've spent in the ocean, I am really an awful swimmer. And without my surfboard, and occasionally I find myself in that situation. I don't surf leashless that much, but occasionally I'll find myself in the situation without a board. And swimming super difficult, man. It requires uh, a whole different set of muscle groups than just paddling does. And one time I, I went with my cousin, uh, we were in Newport beach, just hanging out like on a summer day. And there was a lot of South swell running. And I think we had surfed earlier and then we were hanging out on the beach and decided just to go swim. And I went out beyond kind of where the waves were breaking and was getting swept down the beach and had a really, really difficult time getting back in. And a moment of panic set in where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, I fully understand why people freak out. And Ultimately, what saves you is remaining calm, you know, because I have the endurance and the athleticism and all that stuff to get through it. But as soon as you start panicking, it's kind of kind of lights out at that point, you know, so well, I tell you, your story is a great segue to a couple of stories that I have, but I do have an email that I wanted to read, okay. but, but, but put a little sticky note on that last little segue and we'll come back to it. Uh, it says, Scott and David, thanks for helping us get through the lockdown on the South coast of England after the best winter in memory. It's been flat for weeks until some rideable windswell last week, which saw frantic soul searching and, and interpretations of the new laws and guidelines about whether surfing constitutes a quote, reasonable excuse for leaving the house. Local police were apparently allowing surfing, but not windsurfing. Anyway, I loved your Puerto story. I spent a couple of Christmases there in the late 90s. My lasting memories were realizing that I had to learn how to take off, set my line and wipe out in a totally new way, virtually relearn how to surf all over again. The dry hair paddle outs and violent closeouts and chest high water 
irrespective of wave size, were a miraculous but sickening combination. And it took me a few sessions to get the hang of it. And I was rewarded with the best barrels of my life. I'm 60 years old now. The happy hour, <clears throat> the happy hour cocktails uh, after the evening sessions were pretty puka as well. Keep up the good work. Andrew in Brighton, UK. So well written. It's a well-written email. Yeah, I've found that the English are just, they speak English better and they probably they're, write English better. You know, what is it? They're, they're just better educated? Yes. Um, they don't have so much colloquialism and slang and <clears throat> all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, by the way, speaking of your Porto story, I think listeners should see the photographs that you sent me. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't really want to, um, you know, my ego's big enough. I don't, not to, I probably would get slapped down. People would be like, dude, that's six foot. What's your problem? No, but, no, the photos are great. They're killer. They're really impressive, actually. And I think people would dig them. Um, ego aside, I think that listeners would just want to see them, you know? Yeah, that's like I sent in the text to you. That's the next day when it got blue and sunny and offshore and the swell kind of calmed down. Yeah. Um, uh, which the funny, the funny detail there was you're like, yeah, a classic situation where I rode the wrong board both days. So you rode the board too small on the big day, which then you're like, okay, I won't make that mistake again. So tomorrow bring out the bigger board, but the waves have dropped. So you find yourself screwed both times. I do that all the time. Yeah. I mean, the nine, six worked great. Don't get me wrong. I was glad yeah, I had the nine, six, but, um, but I was probably a little bit overgunned. I probably could have pulled it off with the seven, six, but there was plenty of guys out with big boards like that. So, yeah. Um, did you dye your hair black? When back then in that, in that photo, it looks like you have black hair. No, oh, okay. no, not, nope, not black hair, but you Just did notice the, the swim fin, right? The swim fin talking yeah. to me. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, that's how you go leashless a Puerto with the swim fin in your trunks. Yeah. After you almost died the day before. Yep. Smart. Well, speaking of, um, I've got sort of a sad story <clears throat> that I want to get to, if you don't mind. No, let's do it. Five surfers, uh, I believe maybe a, a mix of lay down uh, surfers like you and I and kite surfers at Scheveningen in the Netherlands have died. Uh, Scheveningen, it's the center of the Dutch surf world and occasionally gets clean, waist to chest high surf. There were originally six surfers who got into trouble, complicated by the strong wind and rough sea. But somebody on Reddit said that it seems like they were caught in a rip and suffocated in a huge layer of foam. Now, I've seen images of the rescue on yeah. the Netherlands. Did you see this, David? I did, yeah. So there's this like four-foot layer of just thick, like kind of brown suds. It's not even foam. It's a thicker and, and almost like more volume than like the foam that you and I are used to. And again, it's, we don't know if this is how they passed because there's a lot of sort of hearsay on all these forums that I was reading, but, but from people that live and surf in the area, this is a normal uh, phenomenon and it's not, it doesn't surprise them that these, that these surfers drowned because when you're in four feet of this really thick sudsy foam, it's there's no way to kind of get through it nor to get on top of it. Yeah. And so that's the speculation that the five of the six drowned in this foam complicated, of course, by really strong winds and rough seas and a jetty apparently there that sticks out 
which looked pretty formidable as well. Brutal. <clears throat> so a sad story. And, and because there were five of these guys, I thought it was noteworthy for us. Um, you know, this is just not the way you think of surfers passing away. No, no, it's actually been kind of a crazy week in terms of deaths. Um, I mean, the big story that everybody's been seeing the last couple of days is Santa Cruz shaper, Ben Kelly. Um, I got this email from somebody from that area shortly after it happened. He said, quote, we lost a fellow brother today. We surf this spot a lot and it's south of town, beach break, peaky. It's less crowded. The waves are about three to four foot. The fog had just cleared and the wind was coming up on shore. We had just gotten out of the water maybe an hour before. Um, the Ben Kelly strike happened sobering exclamation point. We know sharks are around as helicopters and drones see them all the time. We just figured that they've been there for all of these years. And now this new technology just allows to, uh, allows us to spot them now. Anyways, take care. And I enjoy the conversations with Scott. Uh, Eric is his name who sent the email, but so obviously Ben Kelly, um, 26 year old surfer shaper up in Santa Cruz was hit by a shark and passed away the other day. And it was my understanding too, that he was just married last year. Oh, so no. So unbelievably tragic. Is and, there a GoFundMe or do they need anything? Does, does his wife or their, they don't have children, do they? I don't think they have kids. Um, there is a GoFundMe. Um, it'd, so it'd be we'll, good to, we'll link to put that. that up. Yeah, I'd like to get a hold of that. I'd like to send some money to them if they need it. Apparently, they, they'll yeah. need it. Yeah. Wow. That's but so yeah, gnarly, not, man. Great white shark. I know. It's really, I, I don't know what you can even say about that situation. Yeah, his GoFundMe is set for um, $50,000 and they're at forty-six eight ninety, dollars So almost to their goal. Um, well, let's, let's get them over the top here, listeners. Let's. Let's push that over the top. I know it's a tough time for everyone with what's going on, but if you can give, if we all give 10 bucks, that'll be a big thing, you know? Yeah. Um, really sobering. Uh, just kind of a reminder, you know? So did you else, know him through your work in the industry? Yeah. Yeah. He was actually a client at, um, at us blanks. So he calls the office people, you know, I didn't interact with him personally, yeah. but yeah, the front office, Everybody out there has dealt with him. So everything yeah, just I'm feels seeing close to is home. that he's, and I think you could probably speak to this better because of the folks up there in the office, but everything I'm seeing is that this guy was just super salt of the earth, really yeah, exactly. nice guy, really great human being and just like optimistic and positive and into it and a craftsman. Totally. So it yeah, really totally. strikes the boardroom, you know, me and the, the people that are involved in the, the boardroom show, all of us, all the shapers around the, the state and the country and the world for that matter. Um, you know, do sharks feel like a present threat to you ever in your surf yeah. experience? Yeah. The other day they did, where was it? Oh, that morning I did that little sneak out during the oh, COVID yeah. lockdown. I was like the only one around and it was gray, you know, it had that kind of gray, a little bit of onshore vibe. And so I was kind of like, Oh yeah, man. I'm easily spooked. Let's not, I'm not going to BS my way around this. See, I'm easily spooked. I've had those moments of spook. Um, like certainly 
I feel like in Baja, I feel that way because there's kelp and it's less crowded and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it, once you kind of get that thought in your head, I always had this vision of duck diving and kind of coming face to face with a shark in the duck oh, dive. Oh my and God. so if you're by yourself and it's like a uh, twilight hour, sun's going down and those thoughts start creeping, creeping into your head, each duck dive is horrifyingly scary, but those are momentary. I don't actually feel like a real, um, sincere presence of sharks in the water. And so stories like this, and even the stories that Chaz constantly posts on beach grit, they're just so farcical. Like his take on them is farcical that it doesn't feel present. It feels distant to me. And so stories like this actually, again, they're sobering. It makes you feel a certain, um, reality, you know, to the threat. So this, this sad story led me to, um, eventually I found my way onto the great white shark tracking map. Oh yeah. 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 It's amazing. And you mentioned Baja, which is, which is why I'm bringing this up because there's a shark that they've tagged named tail scratch. There's two tail scratch and one named Annika that apparently frequent Baja right around, um, the seven sisters like tail scratch has, has been up and down the seven sisters, you know, maybe even like close to Cabo Colonnette. And then Annika has found her way out to the tip there in the uh, Mag Bay area out on the tip of the Mag Bay. And then there's another great white named Amy who's found her way all the way through the Gulf of Mexico up there, you know, on the, the east side of the Baja Peninsula. Uh, the Sea of Cortez, I should say, excuse mm. me, the Sea of Cortez. And uh, I mean, she's made her way all the way up and down as well as another great white shark. So I, it's weird. Like you, <clears throat> for whatever reason, <clears throat> call it ignorance or naivete. But when I think about the East side of Baja, I don't think about great white sharks. Now the Pacific no. ocean. Okay. I get it. But um, based on this tracking data, there's one for a shark named Junior. Um, there's one for Catherine, which is on the East Coast, which has gone from Massachusetts all the way into Alabama, no, near Alabama. Oh my gosh! And, and like you know, touched along the Keys and all along the coast. By the way, this these sharks are roaming the coastline. They're not like you know super far out to sea. I would suggest to you that they're within a hundred miles of the coastline and very often right on the coastline. So if you get a chance, you might want to check out this great white shark, <clears throat> excuse me again, sorry, tracking, tracking website. It's pretty radical. Cover, covering a lot of distance, man. Um, I got another message from a listener in Santa Cruz saying that he saw five sharks, five different great whites near the beach. Um, he's a drone operator. So like he was flying his drone around and he spotted five different great whites right around the time. The reason why he sent the message was because of Ben Kelly, but said like within the last week that he's seen five different great white sharks. So I don't know if there's um, added activity or new activity, increased activity, or if it's just, again, the fact that the drones are now tracking and you have those track yeah. sites. I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert and there are experts that can fill us in, but I'm, I'm of the opinion 
that because it's springtime and I'm just assuming that again, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm assuming that they have fresh new pops and yeah. they're teaching the pops where to get the food. Perhaps there's something there, or perhaps I'm just going down a rabbit hole of ignorance. I don't know. Well, I'm going to choose to um, forget about all of this and still surf without it in my mind. Like, I don't know that there's anything we can do. There's no preventative maintenance really, you know? So it's better just to kind of not think about it because otherwise you'd freak yourself out every time you're in the water. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I found this website that has those drones that you're mentioning and there's a great white shark here cruising next to a swimmer uh, in New Brighton Beach near Santa Cruz in 2019, the summer of 2019. And it's a it's drone footage on YouTube. It's pretty gnarly. Yeah, super gnarly. Anyway, well, um, I've got another listener email that I would like to hear you chime in on. Yeah, it's actually a listener DM said, "Is it possible that Joel Tudor could be world champ?" If the WSL does not run any more events this year, he's the only surfer to win an event this year. Wow. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. You know, what's interesting about that is how would Joel play that? You know, I'd love yeah. to get Joel's take on this. Part of me thinks that Joel's so um, old school that he'd kind of be like, you know what? It, it doesn't count. But then the other side of it is like, hey, the WCL has been crowning world longboard championships with for under for just one event for a number yeah, of years. Totally. You know, so the thing is with Joel, it's hard to figure out. I don't know which side. I, 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 I'm a 50-50 bet there. I don't know which side of the equation he would go with. I really don't, you know. I but, don't um, think that he would write it off, to be honest. I mean, he earned it. So know, he earned it and he deserves it. Like square. It, it would be good business to, to take it. Totally. You know. There's no not taking it. I mean, it's his whether he accepts it or not. Um, the title, you know, the WSL is the one that will state that regardless of whether or not he wants the uh, physical trophy. But um, I like the concept anyways. It's kind of fun. It suits him, you know? Yeah, no. I, I'm thinking um, maybe I should just call him right now and ask him. Well, I, I texted Devin, um, who obviously works for the WSL and would have the answer. And he said, he'll get back to me with an official answer, but he thinks that they're going to run more events this year. So it might just be a moot point. Well, should I send Joel a text? Sure. Just Feel to free. see what happens. Do you yeah. got a story? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I want your engagement on the story, but, um, I don't know if you saw this, this actually just hit 30 minutes ago. Mick Fanning's conversation. Stab Magazine is doing weekly podcasts and they're getting Mick Fanning to host them. So obviously the podcast world, the surf podcast world is ripe with content right now. There's tons of new surf podcasts. And I think it's amazing that Stab Magazine has somehow employed Mick Fanning to be an interviewer. I never would have anticipated Mick Fanning even wanting to interview people. Um, and it, by the way, he's not great at it. He's asking questions that he and Sam McIntosh decide in advance. And Sam is not only smart, but um, has been working in surf media for years and presumably interviewing people for years. So Sam's well-equipped to do the job himself, but probably wouldn't get nearly as many views if it was just Sam. So they bring in Mick Fanning to actually just ask the questions. And... The other thing is Mick has access. Like 
Yeah. Today's interview, the reason why I'm bringing this up is today's interview is with Gabriel Medina. And I don't know that Gabe would do an interview with Stab Magazine at large, but he'll yeah. certainly talk to his t- Rip Curl teammate, Mick Fanning. Yep. And they do quite a bit of editing. So it's, um, you could tell it's kind of just the highlights of the conversation, not a true podcast in that respect, yeah. but it was fascinating. I thought this was kind of the most interesting thing to me in surf news in the last while um, in terms of like interviewing people. Gabriel Medina is a great get. We do not hear nearly enough about Gabriel Medina. We all form really strong opinions about him strictly based on his kind of competitive um, whatever, you know, his competitive game and the way that he plays it. But when have we seen a long form interview with him? that ask anything other than about his victories or losses. And so I was actually really, really eager to see this. And I've got to be honest, it does not disappoint. Um, There's a lot of really good insight in this piece. So it's 30 minutes. It's on stab. It just went live 30 minutes ago. So you might not have caught it before we pushed record, but I highly recommend watching it. Well, an interesting thought came to me, which is, um, does it play into his hands to stay out of the media limelight here in North America and in the USA? I mean, in many ways, I was wondering, gosh, did he do this on purpose? Did he do this like kind of staying away from North American media so that we could form our own opinions of him, which we know are generally kind of, um, he's the surfer with the black hat. He's the guy that we kind of root against. He's the you know, just the foe that's unstoppable, but it's so great to have a foe like that for us as, as fans. Do you think he's savvy enough to go, you know what, let's just let it, let me just float out there and not do anything as far as interviews and, and media requests so that we can kind of keep this for lack of a better phrase. What's the word I'm looking for? Just keep the, um, the North American consumer surf consumer, thinking that he has me figured out. I I don't think it's that calculated, to be honest. I think it's earnest. I think he simply doesn't want to engage and he's focused on one thing. And so media, if his focus is to win world titles, media is almost irrelevant because he could do that outside of, and the media will report on it ultimately, but the media won't help him win a world title. So I think that his focus has just been that singular Um, I think that other surfers are trying to build their profile in other ways. And so they can kind of leverage the media to build their profile. Gabe doesn't give a crap about any of that. Gabe has not even released a free surf edit in the history of his career, which is also, (laughs) which is also unheard of. So if he's not doing that, he doesn't need media to promote it. And he's going to just, you know, again, keep his head down, keep his eye on the prize. So, But did you change your opinion of him now that you've had sort of the veil lifted off? Yeah, I did. Which is unfortunate. I know, but see, I see that as kind of unfortunate. Like, I don't want to, it reminds me of like when Andy went to Tavar or went to uh, the Mentawise with with Kelly in that movie, that Transworld movie, um, Fly in the Champagne or whatever it was, where it was kind of like, Oh, you mean the rivalry no longer exists? That's too bad. You know, like I'm kind of disappointed, you know, yeah. and it's like, so, you know, I don't want to, you know, I secretly or not secretly, but I, I, 
I want to keep sort of my vision of him as this guy in the black hat. It's interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting thought. Like is the momentary or this uh, modicum of goodwill that this interview will stimulate, is that worth more than what he would have the, uh, I don't know, the reclusive aura that he had fostered all along, you know, like does the goodwill actually equate to something or does it actually diminish the other thing? That's what it's interesting. kind of nailed what I was trying to get across. That's so, it in a nutshell. I was going to ask you kind of, it fits in perfectly with your line of thinking. If our assessment was incorrect, like now do we need to reassess? Like we are ultimately the media. And by the way, uh, Mick Fanning asks him this exact stuff. And Mick, the direct quote from Mick is the media has painted Gabe as a cutthroat killer. And then went on to state that the media is incorrect. Gabe's amazing. And People who get to spend time with Gabe love Gabe. And Gabe came over to stay with Mick in Australia at one point. And Mick, I guess, had a roommate at the time. And his roommate was like, dude, are you seriously letting that dickhead come? And Mick's like, I'll tell you what. I know you think he's a dick. Wait until after you spend a week with him and then tell me. And by the end of that week, his roommate loved Gabriel. So what my question is to you is, if our assessment was misguided and we simply didn't have all the facts, has it actually hindered his career or has it benefited his career? You know, like initially I felt bad as part of media, like, oh man, maybe we really gave Gabe a bad rap. And then I thought about it. I'm like, no, I think we've actually elevated his career somehow by creating what you're saying, you know, the black hat thing. Yeah. That's what I'm afraid of here that, that we're going to like let the steam out of the pressure cooker and, and before it's fully cooked, you know, like, I'm not sure. Did you like my Instapot little reference? Exactly. Last <laughs> night I was at a last night I was at a dinner uh, gathering, and they were hyping the Instapot. The the other dude at the dinner was like, "Dude, you got to get an Instapot." I'm like, "I know. I just heard about the Instapot." Dude, I made the gnarliest brisket last. Night. My wife made the most insane brisket last night. But anyway, to answer your question, Gabe is the burnt brisket, and I don't want him to be you know, medium rare. I want, I don't want the veil uh, to, to come off. I, I, I think it's important for the, here's the other thing. First of all, Mick Fanning's wrong. Gabe is a calculated cold hearted killer in the water. And that's one thing that I like about him. Like you can count on him just being super gnarly competitive. And by the way, 99% of the other competitors are that way too. They just don't have the talent, but if they could, <laughs> they would, you know what I mean? He's got the talent and he's cutthroat. Whereas like John John's got the talent and he's like, Oh, Zeke looked at me weird. I guess I'm going to fold. Yeah. You know, like John John's like, let's go, you know? And he's also the guy that for better, or for worse, all of these years, he's had sort of short stunted, uh, beach interviews where he came off kind of gruff, his acceptance speeches at, at the podium when he received the trophy were often sort of muddled and um, it didn't seem like he was humble enough or he was too humble or he was too quiet or he wasn't, you know, there was always, it was always easy to find fault with him. And I think that plays into this. And I, I mean, who's our rivalry? I mean, I guess Gabe and, and John, John will always be rivals, right? Regardless of how nice and how much vanilla ice cream he starts to eat. Well, look, English is a second language too. Let's not forget that. So a lot, and his English is better now than it ever has been before, but he started being interviewed 
you know, seven and eight years ago. I think he started on tour 2014, maybe. So, you know, his English probably was not that great back then. So, of course, he's going to give stilted interviews and not be able to articulate his emotions, you know? So, I, yeah, I but Edelo doesn't speak very good English. And you know exactly where he's coming from. He's got a big grin and he's all smiles. Yeah, and, it's true. You know. Um, so, a couple of details from this interview, just to give you an idea. He emailed Mick Fanning in that 2014 season, his very first year going into Pipeline. Pipe was uh, forecast to be big. He emailed Mick Fanning to ask him what he should do. <laughs> he's like, he didn't know how to surf big waves. He had never surfed big waves before. And so he's like, you know, Mick, how do I surf pipe essentially is what, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. He didn't ask him in person. He emailed 2014 him was his rookie year. Yeah. 2014, really? That was yeah. the year he, he went up to San Francisco and surfed OB against Kelly in the finals. Was it Kelly? Uh, that was 2014. I don't know. It seems like he's been on tour a lot longer than that. But I'll, look it up. I'll look it up right now. I mean, that's what they said in the interview. Okay. Was that was his well, first year surfing pipe. But um, all right. yeah, it was the half season that year. But yeah, I'll mm. look him up. Um, so I thought that that was funny, you know, or yeah. just kind of endearing somehow. Yeah, here we go again. See, I don't. I don't want any endearing Gabe. I, I don't give me, right. a, I'm going to go ahead and close my ears and my eyes and I'm not going to watch <laughs> this interview. I'm sure it's probably the greatest content in the last three or four weeks, but I'm not going to go there. I, I want to keep my, my jaded perspective. Um, so the funny thing, okay, actually 2011, he was on tour. Yeah. And he, and he surfed the pipe masters. So I, yeah. I well, whatever the, the year that they were talking about was 2014, okay. but, um, yeah, it looks like 2011 was his back half of the season. He surfed bells as a wild card. He got into trestles, then France, um, what about the San Francisco event where, yeah, that was, that was, that was that year. So he won yeah. France and then he won, um, the rip curl search at San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. So he's been on tour for yeah. Nine years. That's crazy. Gosh, time flies. <laughs> it's depressing. Um, and we're still looking good. So um, <laughs> another one of my favorite details about this piece, I got to post a screen grab of it. Mick Fanning's missing a tooth. <laughs> <laughs> That's awfully Australian. <laughs> like it got knocked out the night before at the pub. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, I never noticed it before. I don't know if he has a phony one that he puts in or if... I don't know. It just looked like yeah. he was missing a tooth unless he had something in his teeth that just made it look black. He might be missing a tooth. So <laughs> hard, hard hitting journalism for you right a here. A toothless McFanning. What's when not I, to love? Dude, when I interviewed Dustin Barca um, in Kauai, he took out his tooth for the interview. He sat down. <laughs> yeah, he sat down. He's actually eating lunch when we first sat down. He goes, pardon me, and just pops out. He has a front tooth. The one of the front two teeth is missing, pulls that out so he can eat. And then he's like, I'll put it back in once we start, you know, get the mics on. So I thought that was funny too. Wow. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that's all I got to say about that, but definitely check that piece out. The other huge bit that I would recommend everybody watch is Carissa Moore's new documentary. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw. No, I saw you pimping it. It actually looks very interesting. Just the stuff I've seen, um, you know, the stuff I've seen on Instagram that you posted and that other people posted. Um, 
she's really, really hard not to fall in love with. I think she's just wonderful. She's a great surfer. You can tell she has a huge heart. It's all quite sincere. It's all, um, it's all real. She, you know, like there's, there's nothing but positive vibes that are coming from her. Um, you know, it's so funny, the women's tour. It's when I was checking, when I was thinking about it, I was like, God, remember when Lane Beachley was on tour and she was kind of gnarly. Like yeah. she was kind of like the woman's version of Ken Bradshaw or whatever, you know, like she was, she was dating she Ken kinda, Bradshaw. Well, I know, but, but yeah. she wasn't, she wasn't beloved by the other girls, you know, right. like she was kind of like the gnarly, like she would kick your ass, you know what I mean? Like yeah. she would snap on you. She was kind of gnarly, you know? Yeah. And there's nobody that's really gnarly on tour. Like everybody's still kind of like love. They all love each other, you know, which is okay. That's great. That's fine. It's not really good for the product. I need Elaine Beachley. You know, if you well, want me involved, I need, I need somebody, I need a foe. Yeah. You know, I com I completely agree. It really does zap some of the drama when they're, you know, when Kissy, everybody huggy, loves we love each other and it's sincere. I get it. And Chris is probably the queen of that, but maybe I could see, you know, who I could see being gnarly is Tatiana. I could see her kind of being Ta like the, the tough guy. I think Weston Tati, Webb. I think Tati has some of, she is, I think yeah. Tati has some of it. I think, um, Tyler Wright has some of it. And I think yes. Courtney, Courtney Conlog actually has it in spades. She okay, would be good. the one person who kind of flies in the face of what you're saying. She's still, yeah, I don't, I, she certainly doesn't have it to the degree that I think Lane Beachley did or that, you know, the aforementioned Gabriel Medina does, but yeah. Look, the best thing that could ever happen for women surfing is for Courtney Conlog to throw down with somebody like, Oh yeah. Throw down just with to, Sally Fitzgibbons or no, throw Carissa, like, just, Carissa. Like that imagine would be too gnarly. That would be too imagine gnarly. Carissa, Carissa, who is all smiles and love, and Courtney up in her face, like you know, staring her down, getting up like, in her grill, giving like her a headbutt, like getting in like her grill before, and headbutting her. Totally before a heat, like running up to her on the beach and just cussing in her face, pointing at her and shaming her. And Carissa would melt down. I guarantee you, Carissa I would, would melt down. <laughs> Here's what else we can guarantee. You and I would watch. I would be oh, all over. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would be so all over. Now, what about if she, Courtney did it to Carolyn Marks? Maybe they maybe that's a better maybe cuz I could see Carolyn kind of spitting back. Or Caroline maybe not knowing how to handle it and then going out there and smoking Courtney in the heat. Whereas I think like maybe Carissa, over the course of Go ahead, I'm sorry. I think Carissa would buckle because of it. Like I don't think she'd be able to no. surf afterwards. Whereas yeah. Caroline seems to be a little more, I don't know. I don't know what. And I, Not as vulnerable. I was going to say that I could see it. Yes. And I could see it playing out too over like a course of two or three years too. So like initially Courtney gets the psychological edge and Caroline goes out and she surfs, but she doesn't really do her best and she loses. And, you know, but, but because we know Carolyn Marks is kind of on the rise, she's already really high quality as far as her, her talent level. Uh, uh, mentally, she starts to gain some momentum. And in three years, we have that major duel, wherever it is, end of the year, Courtney versus Carolyn Marks. And we've got all this high drama and God, if we could script it, we would. This is why there's the WWE. Exactly. Um, so I'm curious to know, and I want your honest, honest answer. Are you going to watch the documentary? 
The Chris Amore one? Yes. I've, yeah, I will. I will. I'm okay. actually intrigued by it. I, I'm, okay. I'm mostly intrigued by the the side of Carissa that I don't really know where she's kind of dancing and she's kind of, she's a little bit, she's, they've got some moments there where you can tell she's, she's really, um, the filmmakers were just stoked, I bet, because she's really kind of going out uh, on a limb a little bit um, and really showing a side of her that, that maybe, she, you know, she might've been embarrassed a little bit about earlier on, but she's really just kind of going, Hey, here's who I am. I, I do want to watch it because okay. to me, it's not about, you know, it's not about that. You know, I love surfing. It's all my, it's what I do for my, you know, it's spiritual, blah, blah. I just want to get to know the person, you know, it could be, yeah, it could but be that's Carissa why, as a surfer. It could be Carissa as a shot putter, you know, but I just want to know who this person is. But that's why I thought maybe your answer would be no, that you aren't going to watch it. Number one, it's hard to compel you to watch a surfing anything, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and then also I feel like your assessment and probably most people's assessment of Carissa is one dimensional. It is that she is this loving, radiant being, but there's probably not a bunch of drama in this documentary. There's probably not a bunch of tension in the documentary. It's yeah. just showing how, like you said, Carissa is loving and fun and she likes to dance, but how do you watch 40 minutes of that? You know, like, where is the tension? Is that all I'm going to so get? No, 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 no. I'll tell you what you're going to get. I just was curious if you were compelled to watch it or not. So I'm glad to hear that you are. And I recommend watching it, by the way, for everybody. Yeah. It's well, some backstory real quick. Yeah. Is that when, when I was working at Surfer, I was down in Australia for them covering the Quickie Pro and it was her rookie year. I don't even know if she was a rookie. I think she was like 14. And they had, you know, they had given her a wild card or something. And I interviewed her. So I have a connection with her on that level, which makes me, you know, a little bit biased. I'm, I've always been a fan. And so that might be also part of the reasoning behind my desire to watch this. Gotcha. Uh, well, do you remember a film came out two or three years ago? I, I'd say three years ago now that I absolutely loved. It was called Let's Be Frank. It was yeah, an early I, film. Yeah. Do you remember it at all? Is it a John John Frank doing John John Florence or something? It was John John narrated it, um, but it was Frank Solomon is a South African surfer. So it was about oh, yeah. Frank Solomon, but John John did do the narration for them. At any rate, the real success of that film was the filmmaker himself. His name's Peter Hamblin. And this, he made this film as well. He made Carissa Moore's film. Oh, so cool. I was super excited to see it just because I thought Peter was, I even said it at the time repeatedly. I'm like, this guy is a game changer for surfing. Like it was so inventive, so interesting. Um, that this film is made very similarly. You can tell it's the exact same thumbprint from the filmmaker, but it's almost over edited. It's almost, um, I love the first one was inventive. This feels kind of like a rehashing of the same exact style. He's super talented. I think he might look back at this film in the future when he looks at his body of work and view this as trying a little too hard. And it's probably over stylized. Go ahead. Do you, I'm just wondering, do you think that maybe Carissa's handlers had a say in the edit bay and were like, take this out, take, you know, like, do you think that he might've felt a little squashed? No, I don't. I think this is pure. 
I think he had full creative control. I think Hurley loved. I, so the Let's Be Frank project was a Hurley thing. And I knew that he was going to be doing doing more work with Hurley. And then I knew that he was traveling with Carissa this last year on tour. So I kind of put it all together that that's what it would be. So I think Hurley gave him full creative impunity. License, right. Yeah, a license mm-hmm. to just make his thing. And by the way, it's a it's a wild success. Like it's it's super entertaining. It's insightful. It's full of insights about Carissa. Um, but the filmmaking almost gets in the way of the story. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he wrote he wrote this really intelligent and um kind of quirky script, and they hire a voiceover, like a professional voiceover actress, to do the narration. And there's all of this fancy cutaway gimmicks and editing and like flashback, like all like a tremendous amount was spent in post-production animation and that sort of thing. Mm. But again, it almost gets in the way of the film. And what I got out of the film uh, in terms of like Carissa's origin story and footage from her childhood, I probably could have got in a 10 minute more impactful film. So the rest of the 30 minutes of this is a lot of him basically showing off his filmmaking talent. And I think, and again, I love him as a filmmaker and he's wildly talented, but it's too showy, you know? So, but again, what do you call that in cooking when you, like you, you put too much something in the, stew i don't know what you call it in cooking but i agree with you i'm against that in cooking i am a big fan of simplicity getting out of the way of good ingredients that's it you're a minimalist i am i am uh like it in italy they do it great is there anything better than tomato sauce and pasta a little bit of basil yes great right yeah Yes, what? there is no carnitas and uh, brisket. <laughs> brisket. I don't know. Can you make pasta in an Instapot? No, then I don't want it. <laughs> wow, is that your impression of me? Yeah, I do it every night around here. He should. He should come I see it. I've, I, a couple of things about your impression of me. It must be spot on because it kind of hurt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. moving right along. Um, According to a article in the La Isla Oeste, La Isla Oeste, what what language? Approximately, is this? <laughs> that is Spanish. <laughs> La Isla Oeste, mamacita cochita con leche. Uh, at approximately ten a.m. on Monday, May fourth, Leaf. Ingstrom, a 31-year-old pro surfer from Montauk, was arrested for surfing in Puerto Rico. He was arrested at Sandy Beach in Rincon, thus violating the U.S. Territory's executive order. Uh, Interestingly, he wasn't even surfing. He was just walking to the beach with his board. But they had spotted him surfing a couple days earlier. Yeah. And he had run through the bushes and made his getaway. And uh, he was on this plan to kind of like me, like surf early in the morning before the cops were awake. And he was doing it. He was pulling it off. But these other Groms kind of were caught on to his, to his mission. And they've kind of followed. And you know how Groms are. They're like Instagram. And mom dropped me off at the beach and like loud. And, and so he noticed that the cops were kind of on to the Groms. In fact, they arrested four Groms the day before. And then um, the, 
day that he got arrested, he wasn't out early. He just, he had some other stuff to do in the morning. So I think he, he walked down to the beach around 9am and the cops were in the bushes basically waiting for him. He threw his board over a fence into some trees and in the process fell down on the ground. The cops right there handcuffed him. Another cop car pulled out from the bushes or whatever. And they got him, handcuffed him, put him in the back of the vehicle and off to, um, whatever what's this what's the capital of puerto rico san juan yeah i'll read you or oh, read yeah, the listeners ahead. his exact uh telling of that instance he said the cop put me on uh the cop came up behind me and said put your hands behind your back get on your knees as you said he was already on his knees then three other bikes uh cops on bikes showed up and two more cops in a squad car that's when i knew this was for real they threw me in the back of the car in handcuffs, put a mask on me, and hauled me to the station. It turned into this long ordeal with me sitting in the office in board shorts and a mask, freezing my ass off because of the air conditioning. Three hours later, they let me out, gave me a summons and a court date, and a uh, half hour after I got out, there was already an article in the newspaper about it, end quote. So... Well, the, the interesting, I, one of the funny things about this story is, is Leaf's mention here of these kid surfers. He said that the land cops weren't even on to my scene until these kids started coming to the same spot that I was at. And I know these kids. They always go out in packs of three. They surf three times a day and they post everything on Instagram. They ruined it. <laughs> so it's kind of funny to me. That it's a tale as old as time. It is blowing out the spot, dude. And now it's so bad that you get arrested for it. Oh my. Um, you know what the craziest bit of that story was to me? That he's 31 years old and he's a pro surfer and I've very rarely <laughs> ever heard of him. <laughs> no, there's a dozens and dozens of those nowadays. Uh, no, the craziest story was in the um, article on Surfline where they interviewed him, he said, my dad's F1 or F350 truck got stolen from the house this winter and he tried to chase down the guy who stole the truck. And the, he, my dad was uh, chasing him down in a Tacoma, so a smaller truck. The guy driving the dad's original truck rammed his father off the road, flipping the Tacoma and his dad's arm came out the window as the car was flipping and got crushed. So his dad almost lost his arm by getting flipped by a guy who stole his other truck. So Leif said that he couldn't leave Puerto Rico. That's why he was down there for so long. Um, but he stayed for two months and hadn't surfed up until, you know, uh, whenever he decided to break the quarantine a couple of weeks ago. So that not that a wild story, though? The truck story? <laughs> that is a wild story. And Puerto Rico is the Wild West, man. There's, I know. It's not... You know, it might be a U.S. territory, but when you're there, you feel like, you know, you're in an episode of Breaking Bad, like something could go wrong and there'd be no one to help you. Could you imagine have, seeing somebody steal your car, you jumping into a secondary vehicle and chasing them down and then them ramming you off the road and you almost lose your arm in the in the thing? I think that says a lot about what I was mentioning is that if you don't chase the guy down, the chances of you getting your truck back are very, very slim. So he probably was like, it's now or never. I got to chase these guys. Gnarly. Yeah. Super gnarly. Well, the other funny thing was Leif went down to Puerto Rico to surf crappy, knee-high, windy waves while everybody in New York 
the city's on on lockdown, but the waves have been pumping and people have been actually surfing great waves in New York. So he went on a surf trip and got basically skunked. Skunked and arrested. Skunked and arrested. Rough day for Leif. That sounds like um, the name of an edit. You know, I could see like a 10 minute edit. Skunked and arrested. <laughs> Starring Gabe Medina. <laughs> um, so... Uh, presuming that story is uh, we covered that story already. I want to know what board you've been riding the last couple of days. Have you been oh working on the Xanadu? Yeah, I've been riding the Xanadu um, and I've been loving it. I really like that board, but I got another new board. Um, it's actually a board. <laughs> it's actually a board that, first of all, I love the Xanadu, but this is a board that I ordered months ago and it's oh, been okay. sitting around and it's been ready and it's, it's one of the boards from Ryan Sakel that Ryan's been making me. It's basically a Torn Martin type of board. Like a, it's a 610 twin fin round pin, single wing. It's actually maybe double wing with four channels off the tail, right? Just kind of that Torn Martin vibe, right? And you may recall Ryan made me a 7-1 or a 7-2. And I was like, make me a 610. And I want the rails a little bit more, a little faster. I want a little bit more of a down rail. And so we made a slight adjustment and I rode the board today for the first time and it went insane. It's such a, such a good board. I'm super psyched hmm. on it. And, um, but yeah, no, I've been mostly riding the Xanadu and I've been loving it. I've been digging it. It's, it's quite, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sparky. I Spark noticed, I noticed that, um, for listeners who are unaware, we're doing this via, I could video video via video conference so I can see into Scott's garage. And I noticed you waited to tell me about your new surfboard until your wife exited the garage. She <laughs> swooped in there for a second and then she left and then you told me. Yeah, you know, I've been getting a lot of DMs about the best way to handle this. this the, you know, the spouse relationship and the surfboard relationship and people have been quizzing me on how to get around it. And uh, here's my suggestion. Honesty. Just be honest. You got to be honest. Just if they ask, tell them. If they don't ask, you know. <laughs> That's your version of honesty. <laughs> it's called selective honesty. <laughs> Amazing. No, well, my wife, it's, my wife it's working all. for you. No, she knows everything. <laughs> She's okay with me getting surfboards. Um, by the way, what does Ryan call that board? I know it has a model name. Yeah, it? I know. I want to say Zephyr or something or no. Okay. I, I, I know it does have a model name. It's skipping me and I was trying to come up with it. I actually sent him a text this morning and I was trying to remember the name of the model. Uh, it's going to come to me later. It's okay. It's okay. What well, not? Uh, I'd like to, rem I'd, for Ryan's sake, I'd like to get the name out there. But, um, but anyway, what I wanted, Ryan what I wanted to know, surfboards. what is the improvement on this version because it is an updating of the previous one that you had. How does a it feel? A little smaller, right? So we dropped about three inches. It's 610. Mm -hmm. And the rail is not as soft in the middle of the board. It, it, he had made a real forgiving rail in the middle of the board. And I asked him to just take that tucked rail in the tail and continue that tucked rail up to you know, the middle of the board. Like, give me a little bit more speed in the middle of the board. So when I'm in the middle of the board, I'm driving, I'm getting speed. And then as you know, David, because you have one of these boards, then I can step back and turn off the tail and get back to the middle of the board and do a, ni a you know, nice long drawn out bottom turn. So that's the main thing is that we just, 
he suggested that we just speed up the rail a little bit by adding, um, you know, making it more of like a Hinson kind of a down rail, not a down rail, but you know, more of a down, not so 50, 50 in the middle. Why does the shape of the rail translate to speed? Gosh, I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about, or I'm going to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm of the opinion that a down rail equals speed because it releases water. An edge releases water. A soft rail holds water to it, right? So the softer the rail, the less release you get. This is in general terms. If you've got a hard tucked edge or a down rail, like it's not tucked, the edge is actually 90 degrees to the rail, you're going to get tons of speed because the water's flying off of it. The water's shearing off on either side. Wow. All right. Whatever you say. No, I'm, I'm just confirming what you're saying. Yeah. I'm asking. Uh, yeah. So, whereas if it if that doesn't have a hard edge on it and the water is maintaining contact, it's basically friction, right? And friction slows things down. Yeah, I think okay. I think in general terms, I think without being a an aer- a uh, hydronaut, uh, you know, a, an engineer, uh, I think you're right. Okay. Good information. Good information, Scott. Uh, what were you wearing this morning in the water? A full suit. A full suit. And I've been wearing short sleeve fulls and even a long a long john with no arms, but the water chilled down again. Do you have the red tide up there? Not, not anymore. Not so much. Yeah, the red tide seems to be waning a little bit, but it's been very thick. And it was warm yeah. when the tide was red and the tide... Yeah. The red tide's kind of going away and I've noticed some upwelling. I've noticed that the water's a little chillier. Well, you know what I was wearing this morning? Need essentials. Three, two, back zip, need essentials wetsuit with booties. Boom. Wow. Is it that cold? You know what? I'm kind of just a wuss. Um, I don't like feeling things on my feet. So I don't, the water temp wasn't cold enough to actually necessitate booties, but I just, I'll wear them as long as I can throughout the year. Cause I don't want to <laughs> step on, I don't want to step on, dude, I've been stung by stingrays. I'm not a fan of any of that, stuff. but I actually like booties in general. I like the grippiness of them. So once I get them on for the winter, I kind of keep them on as long as I can until it's actually too warm to wear. So right now the water temp is cold enough to where they're not uncomfortable to wear. Okay. Let me ask you this. This is important. Will you wear booties with a short sleeve full suit? Heck no. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Absolutely uh, not. Oh my god! Okay, no so booties. The booty combination. The booties only work with a full suit. Period. What about a short sleeve full suit? Your toes still no. need to be protected, Dave. You're still sensitive down there, bro. I am, but no. I, I'm fashion is more important to me in this okay. instance All than right. my own uh, well being. You, you will never be liberated until you can wear booties all the way to trunks. Booties with I, a spring suit, booties with trunks. Then you're you're carefree. You're not concerned with your fellow man judging you. I'm a slave to fashion. What can I say? Um, so here's the exact sequence for listeners. Consider this a PSA. When it comes to suiting up, when the water gets cold, full suit is the first priority to keep yourself warm. Booties become the secondary uh, accessory. A hood is the third option, and then gloves come last. So it has to be in that sequence. You could never, my point is, you wouldn't be cold, you, you know, you trunks one day, and then you go somewhere cold. You wouldn't put 
I don't know, a spring suit with gloves and a hood on because that would just look stupid. So you got to go full suit, booties, glove, or I'm sorry, hood, gloves are the final add-on. Am I right? <laughs> you are, you are. <laughs> so many one-liners came to me, I'm just going to bite my tongue. <laughs> uh, do you have a different sequence that you go no. through each each season? I, well, I I wear, a, I wear a hood a lot without booties. So I'll oh. wear a full suit with a hood. Interesting. I, I, the thing is, I have a thing with booties. I hate booties. I wish I could, I want to love booties. I love booties when I do love booties. I love them, but I have such a problem with booties. It's unbelievable. What's the problem? They don't fit. My my toes still get numb. I have hmm. a deformed foot is the problem. I have a massively deformed foot from years of like, I've got a bunion from just leaning on my board with, you know, the balls of my foot. Yeah, it's it's noticeable when you view it versus relevant don't, relative to my other foot. Don't show me. So it's just my toes; they don't fit inside the booty. They get there's no blood circulation. I'm like, why am I wearing booties if my foot's numb? Like, what's yeah. the purpose? Well, might I recommend Neat Essentials booties because the pair that I wore this morning, I've had honestly they're the only pair of booties I've had from Neat Essentials. So I've probably had them for two years now and they still completely are holding up, completely warm, like no problems at all. They have kind of like a thicker, the rubber. It's not all neoprene, you know, it's mainly rubber on the sole and kind of even up around the foot. And um, yeah, things are bulletproof, so. Well, here's what's interesting, right? And this is no, uh, I'm not trying to, to diss any booty manufacturers or any wetsuit companies. But I've gotten to the point, and this is just me because of my deformed foot, that I found the perfect booty for me. And it and it's a triathlete booty. And it's two millimeters. Yep. And it's just a sock. That's yeah. all it is. It's a swimming sock. And it doesn't last very long. I sometimes have to get three pair a season. Hmm. Um, but it's just a sock. There's no hard sole, but they, but they, they feel like a thick sock. So it just provides a little bit of warmth, basically enough warmth to keep my feet warm, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the sad state of my, my booty problem, my booty issue. And All right. I mean, it got to a point that I was thinking about starting a custom booty company. Wow. Because I felt like there was a need. I felt like I couldn't be the only one, but I think I am. I think I'm wow. the only one with a with a booty issue. Custom fit booties, party of one. Yeah, where you take your foot and you literally put them in some sort of like molten plat rubber that's soft and then it hardens and somehow you cut your foot away from it and put on a zipper and who knows. I, it, it was a there was a lot of uh R&D that still had yet to be done. So at the dinner I was at last night, um, that dude was hyping these running shoes that are, are you familiar with this, um, like, what is it, like minimalist footwear movement? Vaguely. Okay. So there's like this tribe, this Indian tribe in Mexico or something that run ultra marathons regularly, like as part of their hunting and gathering, they just run hundreds of miles through the desert, no problem. So Nike thought it was a good idea to like bring some of them up and have them compete or at least do some sort of an exposition. Um, 
wearing Nikes. They couldn't run 20 miles in Nikes, but they run hundreds of miles on their own. And what they do is uh, the only um, support that they provide their foot is rubber tire, like recycled tire. I don't know where they're finding the tires, but they- sure they're finding it everywhere on the side of the road. Right. Yeah. So they're getting the rubber off the, like a re- old tire and then just a tiny little bit of strapping to um, keep it, you know, against your foot. And that's adequate. Well, so there's a company called Zero Shoes and they sell you this kit that kind of does what you're talking about. It forms to your, they like send you an oversized piece of rubber. So you form it to your foot and cut it and then tie the little twine. And uh, people are running marathons in these things and they're cheap. They're like 20 bucks. So I have been running recently and got a pair of fancy running shoes and thought they were the greatest thing ever because they're so cushy. And this dude last night was like, no, bro, go minimalist. Less is more. Your foot has, you were designed ingeniously and your foot has all that you need. You just need to protect it from getting poked by a rock basically, but that's about it. So you know what? I'm looking at this website now. I'm wondering if I could order some of these and surf in them. Like these could be my booty. Well, they don't provide any warmth. That's the thing is that they just provide a little bit of soul. I would have my sock. I would have my triathlete sock. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking too. Hard. This is this is the kind of this is the problem I have with booties. I've literally gone and purchased four or five different kinds of booties. Like thrown down five hundred bucks on three or four different kinds of booties to just try to figure out because I'm like, Dick, booties are a big deal. The water's cold. You got to have booties. So this yeah. is a this is basically my surfing life. If I can't get the booty situation solved, I'm screwed. I can't surf with the you know like a you know a club leg, and <laughs> and so I'm telling you, man. It, anytime the water dips between below 59, I'm like constantly going, oh man, how am I going to deal with this? And I seem to have solved the problems, kind of, but I'm always looking. So zero shoe, I'm on here right now, and I'm going, hmm, you know, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm buying some zero shoes and I'm wearing those. So I've got the solution for you. Breathing technique. Have you, have you, have you seen Wim Hof, dude? The guy hikes in his underwear, Everest, in freezing <laughs> cold for days on end. And he's simply breathing through it. Um, Alex Smith, uh, the North Shore Smith clan. Alex Smith posted a video of doing like a retreat with Wim Hof walking through the snow in board shorts. And he said he wasn't cold at all. Just breathed his way through it. I've, I'm a firm believer that there's something there. Um, I'm not sure that my breathing is going to get all the way down to my extremities. Like it's just my three toes down here that, you know, anyway. Okay. Perhaps triathlete socks and some Wim Hof breathing will get me through next season. You can forget the socks. For, you could even leave the Neat Essentials wetsuit at home, replace it with your Neat Essentials board shorts, go out in the wintertime and breathe through it. That's, That's it. not happening. That is not happening. I'm more on the David Lee Scales side of soft and comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that is my side. Are you describing my physique right now? No, just sort of your, your general outlook on life. Be soft and comfortable. Yeah, that it kind of is. That sums me up. Um, and well-fed, too. Um, all right, so I've got a must-see moment and a duke for you this week. Yes. 
I do too. Do you? Would you yeah. like to start? My must-see moment is, um, interestingly, perhaps you might think it's interesting. It's one of the heats that the WSL is pimping on their um, website. Yeah, do you get the emails every morning? It's like WSL watch, and they're asking you to watch something, right? So the 2014 heat was worth rewatching between John John Florence and Kelly Slater at Chopu 2014. It was mental. It starts off with two 10-point rides, basically, and it's just a mind-blowing heat. And it's a heat that it's easy to remember. It. You don't even need to really rewatch it, but you should rewatch it. And I did rewatch it. It's one of the only times I've clicked on the WSL watch stuff, but I knew that that one was a, that was a um, sort of a grant, like a historic heat, really. That was a historic heat. And as you may recall, David, they tie. At the end, they're waiting for the number, and they're in the channel face-to-face with Peter Mel in between them trying to get their insights into what they think the score is going to be. And the score comes down and they have tied in the final. And of course, uh, with WSL rules, the highest heat score, uh, the surfer with the highest heat score wins the tiebreaker. And that was Kelly Slater with a perfect 10. Well, with the highest individual wave score. Right. Thank uh, you. Yeah. So it was a count back. Yeah. And what, what was the total heat? I mean, it was like 19.87 to 19.87, right? Or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was basically. so close to 20. Yeah, that was basically yeah. it. Something it might have been 7.7. Seven, seven. It was 8.7 seven or 7.7, seven, seven. yeah. Yeah, um, I just did that from memory, by the way. Uh, and, you know, Kelly won that heat, and he went on to the final to face... Gabe you know, Medina. And Gabe lose. Medina. And, and lose. lose to Gabe yeah. Medina. Yeah. So... Yeah. Look, let's be honest. I think we, you and I said this at the time. That semifinal was the final in our eyes. I agree. We just hate Gabe Medina. But there was something really special about watching um, father and son go back-to-back trading That's barrels. right. That's right. That's, that might have been the germination point of the father and son f- <laughs> conspiracy, but not even a conspiracy. It's a, I think you fleshed it out. It's a truth. It's a truism. It, it clearly makes it's science. It makes perfect flat, sense. Flat earthers are buying into it for sure. Um, not only, well, not only is John John Kelly's son, I, I'll just kind of restate some of the bullet points from that discussion that many years ago. Uh, I believe that he was conceived on the reef at Pipeline in a full moonlit night. And that's why they are both just so good at pipe. It makes perfect sense. That's where John John was conceived. So, wow. It's fact. You heard it here first. Um, so my must-see moment is chapter11.tv. Do you know what I'm talking oh. about? No. Oh, dude, you are missing it. You are completely missing the only thing that mattered in surfing this past week. Mm-hmm. Dane Reynolds returned to the blogosphere. Remember M- Marine Layer and how influential that was? Yes. It is having its... Uh, second coming. It is chapter11.tv. There's two videos up. Dane, so two videos in the last week. Dane will write an introduction, a lengthy introduction, which is just as enjoyable to read as the video is to watch, and then post like a, a video. So the first video was basically Dane surfing with a couple of the locals in that area, in Ventura area, young up and comer kids. And then the second video was kind of a profile piece on Aton Osborne, who is a surfer that we have seen uh, at Stab High. He's one of Billabong's groms that's been up and coming for the last few years. So I've had some awareness of him. 
but this was kind of a fleshed out, uh, not a profile video because there's no narrative or storyline really, but it shows a bunch of footage of him from when he was young. So obviously Dane and his filmer, Minnie Blanchard have been shooting for years and years and years. And every local beach has the local Grom that shows up. Aton has been that local Grom. And so they have footage of him from, I would say 10 years old all the way up until now. So probably a decade's worth of footage. And, um, he shreds. The blog is just like Marine Layer in terms of the lo-fi aesthetic, and it's awesome. But this is mainly my must-see moment because I think this is an indicator that Dane, his next phase in pro surfing, is going to be about the kids. I think he's going to be using his platform to focus attention and usher in this new wave of kids. Here is the closing couple of paragraphs from his write-up about Aton. He said, uh, I'd say the real challenges that lie ahead for an aspiring pro surfer. You can have all of the talent and determination in the world, but with the fickle industry support based off engagement numbers and a, and a competitive circuit where a certain amount of luck is involved, there's no guaranteed path to success. And anyways, what's the measure of success for a surf career? Trophies, titles, covers, not anymore. YouTube subscribers, question mark, money made, question mark. I am forever grateful for guys like Taylor Steele and Kai Neville who gave my generation a platform to do tricks to music. And thankfully for surf magazines that organize trips and employed surf photographers who took pictures of us and got printed in said magazines, thus validating our sponsorship deals. That system has collapsed and it ain't coming back. If Chapter 11 TV has a small part in guiding the next generation of surfers and keeping it fun while uh, providing a platform the way magazines and video makers did for us, then for me, that's a success. Thanks for tuning in. Dane. All right. Well, that sounds cool. I'm stoked on Dane. I'm just, I'm wondering how we, how he can monetize that. And I'm sure he will. I'm sure it's doable. I don't think he will. I don't, I mean, honestly, if Marine layer was free for us to view, but the mo really the model was generate as much visibility as possible. And then Quicksilver pays him endorsement money. Well, now Dane has a clothing brand called former. And so the same model could exist for this. He just raises his awareness, elevates his awareness, uh, the in exact engagement that he's talking about in that piece, and hopefully he'll sell more former pieces along the way. Yeah, we'll see. I think that he, I think he can monetize that, though. I don't think that would be a problem to monetize it somehow. What would you, what would he do? Charge I mean, to watch even it? If, even if it's YouTube, you could just do you know pre rolls on YouTube if you get enough if you get enough people watching it. If you get a million views or whatever. He doesn't use YouTube. He uses Vimeo. Uh, well, whatever. My point is, is that maybe he doesn't want to monetize it, but if he did, there's ways to monetize it. That's all I'm saying. Because I think he's on to something. I, I like what you read, and I think I think he's sincere about it, and that's really all you need is passion, sincerity, some authenticity. He's got all of that in spades, and, yeah. um, and he's a smart guy, and he's got three young kids that he needs to feed, so monetize it. I think the kids are fed for the rest of their lives already, the rest of their lives already, you know, based on what he earned from Quicksilver. But I think um, the if you would have asked me, I think I've even said this to maybe a year or two ago, 
Like, there's no chance that Dane makes a comeback. Dane has signed off. He doesn't want attention. Um, he prefers to be reclusive. He's made his money. He doesn't, and he's kind of like, he's focused on the family. And so good for him. But I don't think he would ever make a resurgence. This makes perfect sense to me. This isn't, again, my thought is he's bringing the platform back, but he's not going to be the center point of this platform. I think that he focuses a lot of attention on the youth moving forward. So this, um, I wouldn't have seen this coming. I didn't see this coming, but I'm a big fan. I'm here for it. I'm a huge fan. So um, I have a Duke for you. Do you have one or yeah. do you? My Duke you is all the nurses, National Nurses Day. I was also going to throw Ben Kelly in there. Rest in peace. Yeah. I've got one as well. Um, Sharon Marshall. Oh, man. I'll read. I'll read about Sharon Marshall, but a friend of everyone's, a friend of the surf world, Sharon Marshall passed away this week. Your perpetual trophy for the boardroom show is the Mike Marshall perpetual trophy. Is it not? It is. Tell me it about is. it. And who well, is Mike? Mike was a shaper. Uh, he worked at Harbor. He shaped a lot of the trestle specials that Rich Harbor put out. And he went on to be a school teacher. And, um, and he was just a big fan of the, the craft. of. He was a surfer. And so because of that, he was a fan of surfboards and he was a fan of building surfboards and he was a great shaper. And, um, and he was a big supporter of mine. I'd known Mike and Sharon Marshall since the 80s, like doing like longboard contests in Manhattan, you know, like doing the Dewey Weber event or doing the Santa Cruz event, just doing these longboard contests. The Marshalls were always there, right? Santa Nofre, Alan Seymour's event, all of those longboard contests in the 80s. The marshals were figures at those places. They were on the beach shooting photos, whatever it was. So Mike Marshall was always an advocate of mine. And so was Sharon. And so um, when we started Sacred Craft, Mike was a big part of it. As far as like he was there, he supported it. And then sadly, Mike passed away. And, and so we made the Icons of Foam tribute to the Masters Perpetual Trophy. We named it the Mike Marshall Perpetual Trophy. And it's quite fitting because he was a huge fan of uh, crafting surfboards. Perpetual trophy in that it's one trophy and people's names, the winners each year just get added to that one trophy rather than the winner walking away with a trophy. Right. So right. Yeah, that trophy has, has quite a few, you know, has 20 years of names on it. Well, my experience with Sharon Marshall, which I think anybody in Southern California who's ever gone to a surf event has had this exact same experience with Sharon Marshall, is that she shows up, whether it's the U.S. Open or an event at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, she shows up and she documents it all through photographs. And for years, I didn't know who she was. I would just see the same woman. And even at like NSSA contests at the pier, she'd be there on a cold, windy Saturday morning taking photographs. And I was just thinking to my, for years, thinking to myself, is this just the ultimate surf fan? And what's crazy is that, so I'll get into who she was um, aside from my own experience of seeing her everywhere. But what's interesting is that of all the times I've seen her with those taking photos, I've seen very, very few of her actual photographs. She must have the deepest archive of photographs of surf history, and it dates way, way back. So I'm 
curious as to when and if we are ever going to see those. It could be the greatest cache of surf photography that nobody's ever seen. And, and most of it, by the way, is um, not surf action. Most of it is uh, portraiture or kind of catching, you know, the behind the scenes sort of stuff. So this is what the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center had to say about Sharon. Uh, they said, saying goodbye is never easy, and it's especially hard when it comes to a dear, sweet friend like Sharon Marshall. There's solace in knowing that she's now reunited with the love of her life, her husband, Mike, and it doesn't make the, but it doesn't make the ache of loss any less profound. Sharon and Mike were close friends with Bruce Brown and his family, and while teasing her about chipping his tooth on her toffee, Bruce was truly disappointed if a Sharon Marshall package of toffee didn't show up at his house every once in a while. In the early 80s, Sharon and Mike met a very young wingnut, Robert Wingnut Weaver, at Blackie's in Newport Beach. They took him under their wing and a lifelong friendship was born. She was a tea drinker, and I remember on a cold day when she offered me a cup of tea as I got out of the water shivering. I was so cold that I poured it on my feet. She was pissed but my feet were now thawed, so I beat it back to the lineup, Wingnut recalls. The Marshalls were so much uh, part of Bruce Brown and Wingnut's lives that when Bruce decided to go back to South Africa to film The Endless Summer 2, Sharon and Mike asked to go along. They didn't have official jobs with the production, but Sharon documented both the film project and the volatile socio-political climate of the time with her ever-present camera. Sharon's photography has was highly personal and has largely gone unseen by the public. She started shooting the scene at the OP Pro in Huntington Beach in the early 80s. Husband Mike would joke that she was only going out to chase the hard body surfers. With an eye for those sensitive moments between the action, she focused her lens on the moments in between. When she got a good photo, she'd make a print of it and send it to the subject. Many of the WSL's athletes and their families have Sharon's photos at home. The day she left us, there were still envelopes of photos on her desk yet to be mailed out. There are some, uh, there were some in surfing that couldn't wrap their heads around this unassuming woman that was always there. It's hard to explain Sharon Marshall to those who didn't have the opportunity to truly know her, but this might help you see the true heart and soul of Sharon Marshall. During the early days of the U.S. Open and well before today's events with VIP competitors and entourage competitor areas and entourage tents, Sharon was sensitive to the chaos in a, a that is a surf contest, especially in Huntington Beach. So in the shade under the bleachers, she started what she called the tot shop, a place for the wives of the competitors who came with their kids in tow. She set out blankets, toys, snacks, and activities for the kids so that the moms would have a safe, comfortable environment away from the maddening crowd. Also close to Dick Metz and founding partners of the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center themselves, Sharon and Mike were fixtures at the museum. Mike headed uh, the education committee and Sharon never missed a board meeting or an event. After Mike's passing, Sharon continued to support and contribute her time and resource to Shaq, especially uh, supporting Surfing Heritage's recent pivot to digital storytelling. She was dedicated to the art of photography, photography until the end, always self-effacing. She liked to say, quote, I'm not the smartest person in the room, yet she was 
surprisingly current and supportive of the latest digital technology. Sharon was a beautiful, gentle soul that embraced the people she knew and did her best to keep everything simple. But more than anything, she continued to be the best of friends of all of us that knew and loved her. There was only one Sharon Marshall, and she will be missed. End quote. Wow, you nailed it. That was that was great. I'm, those guys wrote a great little thing there. And uh, yeah, that brought back a lot of memories for me. Well, she was always at the boardroom show. Oh, yeah. Every day, all day. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and honestly, um, considering her legacy and popularity, I mean, like her, she knew Bruce Brown, she knows all these famous people. She was so unassuming. And after years of seeing her, she just started making small talk with me. I, she definitely had no idea who I was or what my involvement in the surf industry was, but she would just make small talk like, you know, about how exciting it was that Jerry Lopez was in the room or whatever it was at the event. She was just the ultimate, um, again, self-effacing fan. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, in my living room right now, there's a trophy that has Marshall Surfboards sticker kind of tucked inside of it. Um, you know, obviously, I've known about this since it happened, and I've just been keeping it under wraps as I was asked to do. Uh, yeah. But now, now's the time to to talk about it, and so it's it's a total bummer. It's 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 very sad, and and as you were reading that, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to have to rename this trophy the Mike and Sharon Marshall Perpetual Trophy. So, epic. That's, that's something that's going to have to happen. Absolutely, that is an yeah. epic, epic call. Yeah. So, anyways, Duke. Forever Duke, Sharon and Mike Marshall. All right. Well, good, David. What a great, um, thoughtful way to end the show. And I guess until next week, adios and aloha. If you're traveling in the North Country Fire, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline, remember me. To one who lives there For she once was a true lover man If you go in the snowflake storm When the rivers freeze and summer ends Please see she has a coat so warm To keep her from the howling winds Please see if her hair hangs long If it rolls and flows all down her breast Please see for me Never has hanging long For that's the way I remember her best I'm wondering if she remembers me at all Many times I've often prayed in 
the darkness of my night In the brightness of my day Was a true love mine. 